Hey everybody, Eric here for the Unlockables podcast. And before we begin the episode, I just want to give a special shout out to all the people who support the show on Patreon. These incredible people are Chris from One Hour One Decision, Stephen Pay, Dave Jackson, Chris Copleen, Rick Firestone, Colby Moyer, Keith Gasper, Nikolai at Night, Mass Keaton, and Mike Mesa. Thank you guys so much for your continued support of the Unlockables podcast. Now, let's get on with today's episode. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to Guiding Keys, the story of Kingdom Hearts presented by the Unlockables podcast. As always, I am your host. My name is Eric, and I will be your guide to the incredibly fascinating, complicated, and incredible world of Kingdom Hearts. And let me begin with a welcome and blessings from our Lord and Savior, Tetsuya Nomura. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever, whenever in time and space you might be located. Uh, The fact that you're willing to come here, check out the show, see what we have to say about video games, see what I have to say about Kingdom Hearts really, really does mean the world to me. Don't have anything to catch up on before we get started, so let's just dive in. Now, if you remember from the first part of Kingdom Hearts 2, we spent a little over two hours discussing about the first two hours of the game in which you played as Roxas. And I laid out an extremely, extremely thorough retelling of that story and kind of a defense of this section of the game because a lot of people don't really tend to like the Roxas section as much because it's like a super long tutorial. But the people in the community love it and love Roxas as a character. And I laid out my reasoning as to why I thought that part of the story was super important and how Nomura got you to care about a character that you're not going to be seeing now for a while. So if you haven't checked out part one of Kingdom Hearts 2, definitely go back and check that out because we're only going to be building on the things that we learn from here on out. I've put all of the guiding keys episodes into a convenient unlockables guiding keys playlist so you can play them one right after another and i think after the latest episode went up we'll have about 10 hours of kingdom hearts content that you can binge i think 10 hours can get you to uh i mean where i'm in indiana to the east coast i'm pretty sure Uh, depending on how fast you drive that is make sure you follow the speed limit the unlockables does not condone speeding but also recognizes your your right as an American to have free will and choose what you want to do. But uh, go and check those out. I think they're uh, some of my best work. They're some of the episodes that I have the most fun on because you can just hear me absolutely losing my mind for Tetsuya Nomura madness. So today we're going to be covering what I'm calling the second part of the game. I think this game will be split up into three parts. We're going to cover the middle section here. And last we left off for 
Kingdom Hearts 2. Roxas had just reunited with Sora. His portion of the game had come to an end and Sora was just about to awaken. We're going to take control of him as Sora now begins a new journey to all the different Disney worlds to discover what is actually going on with our friends over in Organization 13, as well as trying to find his long lost friend Riku and King Mickey. Before we do that, though, I want to dive into some initial thoughts, a couple of things that I have thought about. And as of this recording, I have completed the game and I've thought about a couple of things since completing this game. And I missed out on a couple of things from gameplay, from initial thoughts in the last episode. So as I said before, we finally arrived at the portion of the game where you're going to play as Sora. Uh, To me, this is where things really start to kick off for the series. It's like this point forward, not that Roxas' story wasn't, a kicking off point but from this point forward i think that things really really start to get good uh, to follow up on a couple of gameplay things from part one something i forgot to mention uh, as an additional tool in your combat toolkit is that each character including Donald and goofy that you can have in a party has a special limit move that they can perform with sora that uses all of his mp and is basically an uninterruptible uh, combo move A lot of these make really incredible use of the themes of the different worlds. So like IE Mulan's world is one of the worlds you visit early on Land of Dragons and her limit makes really awesome use of her martial arts prowess and of Mushu being a fire breathing dragon lizard. And there are just a bunch of other ones. They're also fantastic and creative and they do a good job of utilizing the Disney or party character and fighting alongside Sora. They're they're all really, really super cool. Except the one from Pirates of the Caribbean, that one's not spectacular, not really utilized that often. But I digress. Uh, One thing I wanted to follow up about drive forms as well, uh, the different forms that you can change into utilizing Sora's new outfit that he has. Uh, The more you use the forms, the more that they level up. So, for example, in this part, we're going to get access to, to Valor, to Wisdom, and to Master Forms. And as you use these forms, you level up with them, right? So each form has a different criteria for how to level up the form so they can you can stay in the forms longer and they get more powerful so for example valor form you get one experience point towards leveling it up for every hit that you land on an enemy while you are in the form wisdom form you get one point of experience toward towards leveling up that form while for every heartless you defeat and so on and so forth. So all the forms have like a different requirement for how you can level them up. As you level them up, they become more powerful, the abilities get more powerful, and you get abilities that you can use in Sora's standard form, such as high jump from Valor form, uh, such as quick run from Wisdom, uh, and a dodge jump from Master form. So using the drive forms rewards you with an expanded movement options for Sora's standard kit which I think gives you incentive to experiment and use different forms in different situations. And a lot of those forms need to be leveled up all the way for some of the crazy endgame stuff that we'll talk about once we finish talking about the story. Something else that Kingdom Hearts 2 does really, really well too is that certain stat boosts and abilities are unlocked after boss fights or during crescendo points in the story. So after you do a really challenging boss fight or something, you'll usually get like an additional uh, stat boost reward or unlock an additional equipment slot. Something that makes you a little bit stronger just to kind of show that, hey, you went through this boss fight. And now Sora is a little bit, a little bit stronger. And I think that 
these stat boosts make these moments feel much more important and kind of also decrease the amount of grinding you have to do because as you progress through the story and you hit these crescendo moments, you're constantly getting upgrades to your stats, your abilities, and your item slots. So you kind of have this natural progression. It's a mix of this experience system and this progression system, which kind of reminds me of D&D a little bit, the two ways you can kind of do leveling there, either by experience or by story progression. It's a good mix of those to make sure the player is always getting a little bit more powerful, but they players don't feel like they have to intrinsically grind for three, four, five levels before they move on to the next area. I was about level 50 when I beat this game, and the balance always felt good around the amount of levels that I gained naturally and the amount of stat boosts that I gained from important story points. So I think that makes Sora's progression feel really natural with his adventure. Obviously, as a character, if you're undergoing this arduous adventure after all these challenges, you would get stronger. And I think that's a really, really awesome way. Something that not a lot of RPGs at the time were doing stuff like that. You just had to like level up or unlock your sphere grid or whatever it was to gain more stats, more abilities. This isn't something that you can see in any menu or any kind of stat or anything, but Kingdom Hearts 2 introduces something called, introduces a mechanic called revenge values that you don't even realize, but you kind of learn about naturally through playing the game. And these are very, very prevalent in a lot of the more difficult fights. So when you are attacking as Sora, he can land combos. And because the combat is faster, a lot of these combos can chain together for some really, really insanely long combos. Because if you're starting with like a ground combo, you can hit square, knock him up in the air, and then go into an air combo. So to prevent you from just comboing enemies to death, given the vast amount of combat options you have in Kingdom Hearts 2, they introduce a concept called revenge value, where every hit you land on a boss or an enemy increases that revenge value. And when it breaks a threshold, that enemy will auto counter with an unblockable attack to kind of like break your combo and to give the boss some breathing room. And this creates, I know what you're saying, probably thinking, right? Well, they wouldn't have to add revenge values if the combat wasn't broken. You just chain together endless combos. And I hear you. But I think the revenge values create a really interesting dynamic between the player and the boss. It creates a really unique relationship where as you're going through these boss fights, you kind of start to get the feel about when you hit this revenge threshold and kind of like back off in critical mode in the hardest difficulty in this game. If you're trying to go for the platinum and play critical mode, this is essential. And for some of the, the end fights, even in normal mode, this is essential to know when to back off so you don't trigger that revenge value so that the enemy doesn't get a free hit and can kind of go into a combo off you then. So this is something that's really important to learn. If you ever watch speed running for Kingdom Hearts 2 at a high level, they'll talk about revenge values all the time. So it's a really, really interesting mechanic in an in a action RPG that I think is not often shown a light on, but everybody in the Kingdom Hearts community knows about it. And as I was trying to get my thoughts together for Kingdom Hearts 2 and after rolling credits and watching some videos by some excellent YouTubers, I, I stumbled across a Kingdom Hearts 2 retrospective by uh, a YouTuber named King K. And King K has a real a lot of really, really great retrospectives for different games. And he's done retrospectives on pretty much the entire Kingdom Hearts series, including a pretty passionate and logical defense of the criticisms of Kingdom Hearts 3. So if you want something to check out, go check out King K. He has some really, really fantastic uh, video game retrospectives. But he made the point during his video for Kingdom Hearts 2 that Kingdom Hearts 2 is a trifecta of variety, balancing, and pacing, really making it the best paced game 
in the series and giving you the most amount of variety and way to approach things uh, in the series. And I, I tend to agree that with this, with the way that all of these things that I mentioned kind of mix together, uh, the variety of different worlds you can go to, the different the different places you're constantly moving to after about an hour to give you a, a fresh uh, new scenery. The way that the game is balanced between all of these systems, you have the drive forms, you have magic, you have limits, you have source standard combos, you have a lot of abilities that change the way his combos work. You have so many options for customization that not a lot of people realize. They just think, oh, it's a hack and slash throwing all the uh, the uh, uh, abilities and just wail away. And yes, yeah, so you can do that, but... To be successful for the harder challenges in this game, you really got to think about your ability setups and your combo builds and what the boss is trying to tell you because certain bosses have certain strategies that rely on different builds of your abilities differently. And the game does a good job of giving you a lot of tools for that. And the pacing leads back into the stat boost from boss fights and stuff that well. Uh, the, the pacing is very good. It constantly feels like you're making progress. You'll go for long amounts of time dealing with kind of just Disney stuff and then get little like Reese's pieces sprinkled out through the story about what is going on in the background. What is the organization doing? What is the Kingdom Hearts portion of the story doing? And then all of a sudden you'll get giant lore dumps you get giant uh spots of uh exposition and giant things where the kingdom hearts story just kicks off and uh to me i haven't played a game that is is better balanced and better paced like story-wise than than kingdom hearts 2 it's absolutely fantastic so as i said before king k got me to think about that go check out his video it's really really awesome and he has a fantastic youtube page now some of those early thoughts out of the way why don't we dive into the reason that we're all here for the story? And of course, you know, we are picking up as our boy Sora finally awake, finally able to interact with the world. Sora. Who's there? Sora, wake up. Peace to the world. Found Kyrie. Oh yeah. And then we went to look for Riku. I think that's right so far. Framework. What does your journal say, Jiminy? Gee, there's only one sentence. Thank nominate. Hmm. I wonder who that is. Uh, 
Well, what do you say we find out where we are? Quick thing I wanted to note about the story as I've been going through. This will be now the sixth episode of Guiding Keys that I've done. And as I've gone through them, I've tried to be as incredibly thorough as I possibly could. But in Kingdom Hearts 2 specifically, and I kind of got this feeling too watching some videos about Kingdom Hearts 3. From this point on, I feel like the Disney and the Kingdom Hearts portions of the games kind of start to diverge a little bit. Whereas we'll get large portions of the game where we're going through and trying to solve and fix stuff in the Disney worlds. And we'll have parts of what I call the Kingdom Hearts story sprinkled in along the way. I felt that at the start it was very prudent to kind of deep dive into the Disney worlds as well. Because I think Kingdom Hearts 1 does a really, really great job of meshing the Disney Final Fantasy Kingdom Hearts-ness all together. And making all those worlds pretty relevant. Not that the worlds aren't relevant here in Kingdom Hearts 2. But I just feel like... It's at this point the Disney portion and the Kingdom Hearts portion start to diverge just a little bit. And that might be my personal opinion about the way I feel about the story. But I think going forward from here for the sake of my sanity and to cover more of the Kingdom Hearts portion of the story, which is what I really want to do. I think I'm going to have less emphasis on each individual world and the things that happen in them. And get to the parts where Kingdom Hearts things happen, if that makes sense. So I'll kind of briefly go over the worlds that we visit. If I have some thoughts on them, if I like them or in some things about the story and that I'll, I'll go over them briefly. If Kingdom Hearts things start to happen in that world, I'll probably key in more specifically on that world. But I think from now on, I'm going to try and just as the game is doing here, I'm going to try to diverge the Disney stuff and the Kingdom Hearts stuff because it does start to kind of diverge a little bit here. So like I said, we begin our story in Twilight Town and Sora awakens from his pod after a year of sleep to see Donald and Goofy. And of course, they kind of jump out of the pod. They have no memory of the events of Chain of Memories. They have no idea why they're there. They have no idea what's going on. Jiminy suggests to check the journal. And as we know... <laughs> from Chain of Memories, there is only one thing in the journal because it has been wiped clean. And the only note in that journal says, thank Nomine. Not that that means anything to anybody because they can't remember <laughs> absolutely what happened. We are exiting the Roxas portion of the game. Roxas is now reunited with Sora and with nothing else to do, what would you do if you woke up in a strange basement in a town you didn't know uh, missing a year of your memory? You would just go into town and try and figure out what is is going on. So the trio heads into Twilight Town. They are wandering around and they just so happen to wander into the usual spot where they encounter Hainer, Pence and Olette. And as they wander into that space, Sora remarks how he feels like he's been to this town before, which he kind of has. He went there in Castle Oblivion as memories on the other side of his heart, remember? And now since Roxas has reunited with him, the portion of the power that he held, Sora's power that he held, Sora has like these dormant memories, that he, these familiar feelings of things that Roxas experienced. So they wander in, Hainer, Pence, and Oleto there. You know, they get to talking. 
they introduce themselves. And when they introduce themselves, Olette tells them that an individual with round ears and a black coat is looking for them. And we only know one person who has round ears and is wearing a black coat. That has to be King Mickey. Olette tells him that he was headed towards the station. So the trio of heroes rush over to the station to try and catch up with him. And here we get our first fight as Sora with the new group. Sora, Donald, and Goofy are back in action. They are immediately surrounded by what we now know are nobodies, the Dusk nobodies, the weird, long-limbed, short-torso nobodies in the white jumpsuit that have like a zipper for a mouth. They're very, very strange. The nobody designs are super unsettling. I think this part is cool because after fighting the nobodies for a little while, uh, the trio is literally overwhelmed. And I think this makes sense because they literally just woke up from a year of sleeping. They had all their memories rearranged and put back together. So uh, they're tired. They don't have the same strength. They, they, like I said they literally were in stasis for a year. And I think this is a really good and clever way to show that they are in a weakened state. But before all comes to an end, before they are defeated by the nobodies for good, we get a scene from the top of the bell tower. A black shoe steps to the edge and a, an object falls from the sky, landing. We can tell by the round ears that it is our good friend, King Mickey, with King Mickey doing his best Yoda impersonation with his keyblade, literally flipping around the trio of heroes killing all of the nobodies. Sword Island Goofy reacts stunned. This is the first time they've seen the king since he was locked back in the, the realm of darkness back in Kingdom Hearts 1. So they've been looking for him for a whole game now, and they're absolutely stunned. But before they can get any questions or talk to him or anything, Mickey hands them a bag of money and says, the train knows the way that they have to get on the train. And the money bag looks suspiciously like the one that Roxas had taken from him <laughs> during <laughs> during his section and it's funny to notice too that when they go to pay for the money for the train that Olette notices this as well so first time that we're kind of putting the pieces together that uh <laughs> they're the two twilight town thing it's just kind of funny so after this you know they decide to get train tickets and they decide to stay together for another adventure where they go out to, to find riku and to ultimately find out what the king is doing try and catch up with him uh, they pay for the tickets to board the train, but before they do that, Hainer, Pence, and Olette come, and they're like, hey, like we know you're new in town. We feel like we should say goodbye to you guys and see you off. And definitely a touching gesture by the Twilight Town trio. And just before Sora, Donald, and Goofy are about to board this blue train with the wizard hat, by the way, the one that we mentioned back in the, the first part in Roxas's part, Sora unknowingly has a tear run down his face at the sight of saying goodbye to three people that he just met. But we know <laughs> that Roxas is reunited with Sora. And technically, the memories that Roxas has with them, even though they were a digital world, are real. Sora is shedding the tear because Roxas can't say goodbye to his friends. And this is just the first of, of many, many moments sprinkled throughout Kingdom Hearts 2, reminding us, while it is a long time before we see Roxas again, Reminding us that he's technically still there, even though Sora and company don't know it. And I think this game does a really, really great job of it. It's such an interesting dynamic for the player to know what happens to Roxas, but for Sora to not know. And it kind of lends to this frustration you kind of have with Sora as a character when 
people are alluding to Roxas's existence and Sora's just not getting the picture at all. And it really helps remind you that Roxas is still there and he's still part of the story and just remind you of all of the terrible things that he went through to make you feel even more sorry for him. So the gang gets on the train. Like I said, it's blue, it has a wizard hat, and it is whisked off into space on an ethereal train tracks uh, while sad music plays. And this is emotional because, like I said, while we don't know it, well, Sora doesn't know it, we, the player, know that this is sad, that Roxas is leaving behind people that he cares about very deeply, even though he's not technically in control of the story. After the train leaves, we transition to one last scene in Twilight Town on the Sunset Hill, a scene with Axel, Naminé, and the hooded man identified as Ansem. Guess that's that. Let's go. Go where? It's not like we have homes to return to. We don't exist, remember? Yes, it's true. We may not have homes. But there is some place I want to go. And someone I want to see. Same here. So, you think you might let us go? I know you're here to get rid of us, but... Diz wants to get rid of me? Go. You sure about this? I owe you both. For what? Castle Oblivion. You helped us. <laughs> you don't have to tell me twice. Thank you. And here we see that Ansem, it looks like Ansem was clearly ordered to destroy both Axel and Namine, but he decides not to. He decides to let them go. And when he explains why, he says it's because they helped at Castle Oblivion. Help too. They didn't help Ansem at Castle Oblivion. So Axel opens a portal that both he and Naminé leave through to go and do whatever it is that they're going to do. Ansem just lets them go, obviously not okay with just disposing of them, which is obviously probably what Diz's order was. And that scene comes to an end. It's just interesting scene that kind of makes you scratch your head a little bit and wonder what exactly is going on with this cloaked Ansem figure. It's, it's very interesting. So after riding the space train for a little bit, the train drops them off at what is only can be described as a floating island in space that has a crooked tower on it. And the train disappears after dropping them off, causing Sora to laugh nervously. He says, there goes our ride, which is, I don't know, to me, that makes me chuckle every time because it's just one of the, the funnier things. And as the three approach the tower, they find a giant hulking figure peeking through the doorway. When they ask him what's going on, Giant Figure explains that the master of the tower is a, a powerful sorcerer and the figure wants to turn him into a heartless that would be his bodyguard. The figure then turns to face Sora, Donald and Goofy, and we see that it is none other than Disney's Pete, closely associated with Goofy cartoons and movies. Pete's always like the, I wouldn't say he's an antagonist, but, uh, you know, he was the Steamboat operator in Steamboat Willie. So Pete's been around since the beginning of Disney, just as Mickey Mouse has. 
And the story here is that Pete was banished from Disney Castle. King Mickey banished Pete from Disney Castle because he was basically being a bad dude. And Pete explains that he's building an army of Heartless for Maleficent to help her conquer uh, all of the worlds, which is comical to Sora and Donald and Goofy because they explained to him that they basically <laughs> killed Maleficent during the first game. So this causes Pete to summon some Heartless. Uh, they have a quick fight here. With, you have a quick scripted battle with a bunch of Heartless showing up. And after that, we kind of have a, a portion where Pete and the heroes are, are talking in. And Pete describes, they, they ask Pete who lives in this tower. And he says that the name of this person that lives in this tower is Master Yen Sid. Funny thing about the name Yen Sid, it's a Disney anagram. So Yen Sid backwards is Disney. Just flip it around. Yes, haha, it's, it's very funny. Upon hearing the name, Donald rushes inside and Goofy explains to Sora that Yen Sid was the king's teacher. And this is kind of a, a cool throwback to Fantasia, uh, a famous cartoon from Fantasia called The Sorcerer's Apprentice, where Mickey Mouse was the apprentice of the sorcerer. And Yen Sid is basically the, the sorcerer from that Fantasia skit. So they meet Yen Sid and we get a lot, a lot, a lot. Master Yen Sid. Hey there. Show show some respect. So, you are Sora. Now then, have you seen the king yet? Yes, we did, Master. But we didn't get a chance to talk to him. Yes, the king has been quite busy of late. Therefore... It would seem that the task of instructing you three falls upon my shoulders. You have a perilous journey ahead of you. You must be well prepared. You mean, we have to go on another quest? I was looking forward to finding my friend Riku, so we could go back to the islands. Yes, I know. However, everything in your journey, Sora, is connected. Whether you will find your way home to the islands, whether you will return alone or with your friend, and whether or not the islands will still be there. And the key that connects them all is you, Sora. I'm... the key? You guys are probably smart enough to pick in already, but if since I've kind of gone through and explained everything that's happened in KH1 and Chain of Memories, you guys have a basic knowledge of what is going on. But for the player that maybe skipped Chain of Memories, this is a nice little exposition to kind of explain everything and remind people of kind of what happened in, in Kingdom Hearts 1 and, and allude to a little bit of the stuff in, in Chain of Memories. So we get an explanation on the nature of Heartless. We already know this. It's They are... Physical manifestations of the darkness in people's hearts. We already know that. But this is where we get a piece of the extended Kingdom Hearts lore. When a strong person loses their heart and becomes a heartless, the empty body that is left behind, if it has a strong enough will, begins to move and act on its own. And this empty shell is what is called a nobody. And if you played Chain of Memories to finally get this clear explanation, this links back to 
everything that happened in Chain of Memories to everything that happened at the start of the game. When you go back and play Chain of Memories with this information, you'll keep seeing how the organization members refer to nothingness, to nobody with a capital N, to nobodies with a capital N. About how they're about how they're empty, about how they're hollow, they don't feel, they don't have anything inside. And this is why this is directly related to their nature as a nobody. And nobody is a person that has lost their heart, but their body is behind, still moving on its own. It enforces this concept of being in the Kingdom Hearts universe and that to, to truly exist, one must be comprised of a body, a spirit, and a heart. And since nobodies lack hearts, they don't really truly exist based on the fundamental order of the universe. They are an abomination, an entity that is rejected by both light and dark, because if you don't have a heart, you don't truly exist. So we get the explanation that Organization 13 is made up of nobodies, of powerful nobodies that command all of the lesser nobodies, like the Dusks, the, the characters in white jumpsuits. So nobodies will be a new class of enemy that you will fight, and they're mostly denoted by being white, whereas the Heartless are like dark or, or, or black or a little more sinister looking. And one of the main differences between Heartless and nobodies is that Heartless are purely instinctual creatures, whereas the higher rank of nobodies are intelligent. They can plan. They can organize Organization 13. They can work towards a common goal. And so, of course, the 13 members of Organization 13 have organized to command all the nobodies to work towards a certain goal. And Yensid gives them this warning to be careful because Nobodies are dangerous because they remember what it's like to have a heart, even though they don't have one. And they can pretend to have emotions to trick their opponents, which make them incredibly devious and incredibly difficult to deal with because they'll use those emotions that they pretend to have to lower your guard. And that's when they'll strike. They might be thinking, too, well, Heartless, didn't we defeat Ansem in Kingdom Hearts 1? Wouldn't that have prevented the Heartless from taking over like they're supposed to. And yes, you would be correct. And Yen Sid addresses this saying that when they defeated Ansem in Kingdom Hearts 1, this did prevent a significant amount of Heartless from being ex entered into all the worlds and basically taking over. But the Heartless are a physical manifestation of darkness. And while there's darkness in people's hearts, it will be hard to get rid of all the Heartless once and for all. But that is what the role of a keyblade bearer is is to maintain that balance and to make sure the darkness does not become too overwhelming they also get information about what king mickey is doing and they don't not very much but yen sid says that king mickey is basically just traveling the worlds gathering information trying to figure out what is going on with organization 13 something interesting that happens too here is that sora gets a new outfit one of my favorite designs of his uh, from the good fairies from sleeping beauty which this is new outfit gives him access to the drive abilities that I mentioned in the last this last episode and in this episode, uh, because when he woke up, he had his Kingdom Hearts one outfit on, but he's a year older. When you go from 14 to 15, you have a growth spurt. So his old outfit is comically small on him or it, not comically small, but it's just it's it's like when you squeeze and try to squeeze into a shirt that you can't wear anymore or you're wearing shorts that you can't really fit into anymore. Uh, it's like that. So he gets a, a much cooler look. Um, a little, uh, actually a pretty stark departure from what it is, as his first outfit had a lot of 
white and red and yellows, like brighter colors. His second outfit has a lot of dark colors. It's primarily black that has like yellow and red and blue accents on it uh, with bright yellow shoes because, of course, he has to have giant yellow shoes. Yensid also gives them back the old gummy ship and explains how in Kingdom Hearts 1, the barriers between the worlds came down because the Heartless were trying to devour the worlds, right? Enabling them to travel from world to world between the gummy ships. When they defeated Ansem, the worlds were not connected anymore. But he said that uh, the worlds have prepared new pathways that they can unlock to travel between them. And this will be explained. This You'll see this happen later in the game. We'll, we'll get to it in a little bit when we get to the next part of the story. As the trio leaves, we get... One last final scene at the mysterious tower of a raven, crow, black bird of some kind, that carries in a mysterious but familiar looking cloak and drops it in the room where the good fairies are. And they too seem like it, think it's kind of familiar. And as they sit there wondering what to do with it, the cloak starts to move and shift and start to take shape. And a figure rises, being restored from the ground, out of the cloak. It is none other, as the good fairies rush off, it is none other than Maleficent herself. She has returned. At first, this part of the game doesn't make any sense. You might think they were just bringing her back because they needed like a chief Disney villain again. And Maleficent is the mistress of all evil, so... There, there is no more evil Disney character in their pantheon than Maleficent. Don't ask me how right now. This pays off way, way later. Just remember that this happens like maybe eight episodes down the road. This pays off way, way later. <laughs> I, I promise you. One last thing I want to get out of the way, and I put this in my notes here now because I don't think there's any beating around the bush about it. And I'm sure you've already made the connection because you're smart and you understand what's going on. And we just got this big explanation about nobodies and Heartless. Roxas is Sora's nobody. You might be thinking about yourself, well, when did Sora turn into a Heartless? Because you have to lose your heart for a nobody to be created. Remember in Kingdom Hearts 1 when Sora discovered that Kairi's heart was inside of him and to wake her up, he had to release her heart. He stabs himself with the dark keyblade that releases hearts and he was turned into a heartless. At that moment, Roxas was created and Roxas was recruited into Organization 13, but he was then captured by Riku and Diz to reawaken Sora. So that is very important. There's going to be scenes where this is referenced. And like I said, you, the player, isn't explicitly told to you until much later in the game. But you, the player, are smart enough to put this together to understand that Roxas has to reunite with Sora because Roxas is Sora's nobody. Roxas shouldn't even exist in the first place because Sora technically still has his heart. And that is why Diz and Ansem and all these people give Roxas such a hard time during his part of the story saying, you don't have a right to be, you don't have a right to exist, you're, you're nothing basically. I'm just telling you this now to get it out of the way. I, you know, I like to kind of be dramatic alongside the story and reveal things in the story as they happen. But if you didn't get it from the first part or if you haven't gotten it from what I've said up until now, this is me putting it out there that Roxas is Sora's nobody. 
so after our departure from the mysterious tower, we go to the gummy ship world, and thankfully the gummy ship sections of this game are much, much better than they are in the first game. They're much more action-oriented shmup sections with different kinds of missions. The, the gummy ship editor and builder is a lot more robust, and you actually get uh, like designs and blueprints that you can use custom prefab ships that'll get you through majority of the missions but uh, to really s rank all of the missions and get that achievement if you're going for like the platinum trophy or to get all the achievements you really do need to kind of experiment with the gummy editor unless you're pretty good at the gummy ship sections which i am just not the first world we come to is one that is familiar to us and we come to the familiar world of hollow Bastion, that is right, the second to last world of Kingdom Hearts 1 is now the first world, if you're not counting Twilight Town or the Mysterious Tower, that we set off on our adventure and we come across. And we see a much different side of Hollow Bastion this time. Uh, instead of landing in a, a desolate, deserted, like steampunk futuristic castle, we land in a town that has sprung up around the castle outskirts that has shops and people milling about and life that has returned seemingly to a once pretty evil and desolate place. But before we're allowed to explore, we, we get a scene to start our arrival at the world where we see Pete coming back to the castle, seeing if Maleficent was really destroyed. And he says, oh, it obviously must be true. And that's when he sees the Raven from Sleeping Beauty basically foretelling Maleficent's return. And, and Pete notices this as well. So he understands that, hey, the Raven showed up like she must be back or listening or, or something like that. Like I said, well, I won't spend too much time focusing on the specific Disney elements. Pete and Maleficent are probably the most relevant Disney thing to to the plot so i will from time to time just be checking in with what specifically they're doing because their plots kind of cross with the overall kingdom hearts story as a whole so like i said we see a much different side of hollow bastion this time a town uh, filled with life people are living there have returned to live there after Ansem was defeated after the Disney villains were expelled. Uh, we we meet Donald Duck's uncle, uh, Scrooge McDuck, the uh, eccentric, intrepid billionaire, trillionaire. I don't know how, who knows how much money he has. He's so much wealth that he literally has a, a dives into his wealth. As we head into town to, to try and find Leon, is that, that's why we're, since we're here, we're like, oh, we should find Leon because at the end of Kingdom Hearts 1, they had come back to Hollow Bastion. It was revealed that Hollow Bastion was the world that all the Final Fantasy characters had come from in this reality. So they were heading back there to try and rebuild it from, basically rebuild it from what it had been turned into. So they kind of start to wander the neighborhoods and, and just see, get their bearings bottom and see if they can find anybody when Yuffie shows up. And sure enough, as soon as Yuffie shows up, you're ambushed by Heartless, but they defeat the Heartless easy enough. And after the battle, Yuffie takes the gang back to meet Leon and everybody who's working on stuff over at Merlin's house. Leon, you know, is Squall from Final Fantasy VIII. I will be calling him Leon for the duration of this series just because that is what I know him as. So the FF gang has now formed what they are calling the Holobastin Restoration Committee. And when they come back in, Leon says, hey, I knew it. I knew you guys were coming. And he explains to Sora that around the same time a little bit ago, everybody just remembered 
who they were. And Sora kind of takes offense to this because he was like, wait, what do you mean? You like forgot about us after giving us that whole speech of we may never meet again, but we'll never forget each other. And here they are seemingly admitting that they had forgotten about Sora until a little while ago, which he doesn't know this, but we as the player know after having played Chain of Memories that when Sora's memories were altered, everybody who was connected to him forgot who he was. And as Nominee put his memories back together, people remembered who he was. I believe it was Diz that said that people would remember him like a friend who had just gone away for a while. And this is seemingly what tends to happen here. And Sora's like, what do you mean you forgot about us? But it, it makes sense in the, the context of the story that we've been told. Leon is heading up the Holobastion Restoration Committee and asks Sora if they're able to help out with a big problem uh, that they have. So Leon takes Sora to an area overlooking the castle grounds and the problem he's asking Sora to help with, we look out in the distance to see the castle surrounded by a gigantic swarm of Heartless and wandering groups of nobodies that are just kind of wandering through the, the crags and the ravines and the, the canyons that are surrounding the castle lands. Sora agrees to help and as they're kind of observing and seeing what is going on here, they're interrupted by mysterious voices as nobodies start to swarm towards the town. So Sora, do you know what's going on then? There's this guy, Pete, who's been going around plotting with the Heartless. But he's not smart enough to tie his own shoes. The ones we need to worry about are the nobodies. And those Organization 13 guys in charge too. You called? You're doing well. Who's that? This calls for a celebration. But before they get into the town, the doors that lead into the town close and Sora and Leon mount a, a valiant defense of the town gates. And this is a, a super cool scripted battle where you get to fight side by side with Leon and his gunblade. Uh, it's so, so great. Anything involving the FF characters in this series is just absolutely fantastic. After this, after we successfully fend off the nobody attack, we hear the voices return and Sora runs out into the open and sees as a black cloaked individual appears up on a ledge with more black coated individuals following suit, appearing one right after another. The Keyblade, a truly marvelous weapon. Were it only in more capable hands? <laughs> <laughs> Show yourselves! interesting to note if you've been keeping track of the number of people in the organization there should be 13 right there are only six people that appear up on the ledge and this is notable because going back to our experiences in chain of memories we know that Sora and Riku have dealt with some of the members of the organization so let's do a quick head count let's do some quick math right 
Marluxia is out of the picture because he was caught. He's basically taken out by Sora, but he was trying to overthrow the organization. Larxene is out of the picture. Uh, Zexion, Lexeus, and Vexen are all out of the picture. There's five that we know that have been defeated. Axel is seemingly still alive after his encounter with Roxas at the end of his story, but Axel is seemingly acting outside of the organization's influence right now as based on the scene that we had back in Twilight Town where Ansem let them go. We know that Roxas was a member of Organization 13, so that would bring the number of organization members off the board to seven, so it would make sense that there are only six remaining. After just observing Sora and having a quick observation, all the members leave, but one of the members teleports down to have a quick chat with Sora. What's the big idea? Oopsie daisy. Move! Now, do you think that's polite? Shutting me down like that? I said get out of the way! As if. You can talk all you want, but that won't change a thing. Then we are gonna make you move! See, that would work. If I were just any old dude. Except I'm not. I'm with the organization. Nothing any old about me. Huh, tough talk for someone who stood on the sidelines while his nobody flunkies did the fighting. Oh dear. I think you got the wrong impression. You gonna cry? As if. Why don't I remind you how tough the crowd you're dealing with really is? Remind me? <laughs> <laughs> That's right! You used to give me that same exact look. I guess you think you can psych me out by saying really random stuff. Gee, I just don't know. Be a good boy now. Wait! What? He got away. That was weird. Who gave him the same look? We're not meant to know who this member is yet, but I'm going to tell you this right now just so I can keep track of who's who instead of just referencing a bunch of black-coated individuals so that you guys know who has appeared where, when, how, because not everybody reveals their faces right away. This individual is known as Zigbar, X-I-G-B-A-R, and Zigbar basically stays behind to taunt him, telling Sora that the Keyblade picked a dud this time, and when Sora was like looking at him confused... He tells Sora that he used to give me that same look, referencing the time that Roxas spent in Organization 13. And this is, again, the first of many instances that the organization members will reference Roxas, much to Sora's confusion. With that little bit of taunting out of the way, Zigbar leaves and the gang reunites with Leon, saying that they have to deal with this organization mess. And what ends up happening now is Back at Merlin's house, they gave Sora a, a card. It was basically a membership card for the Hollow Bastion Restoration Committee, making him an honorary member. And the card starts to glow, reacting with the light of Sora's keyblade. And what this does is it triggers a cutscene where a giant keyhole appears in the sky and Sora unlocks it. And this is basically how Sora unlocks the different paths from world to world for, to be able to travel with the gummy ship. These were the gates that uh, Yen Sid was talking about. And this basically means that Sora has to carry on to the next world. And this is how all of the gates get unlocked. There is a, an item 
of great importance in that world that basically will react with Sora's Keyblade, signifying the connection between Sora and that world and so this cutscene will play unlocking the gate to the next area so that you can move on to the next area. So Sora tells Leon that they have to go, but he does promise to come back to help with all of Hollow Bastion's problems. So we go back to the gummy ship menu world select thing, and we have a couple different options where we can go. Actually, we can go to two different worlds. So we can either go to the Land of Dragons, which is the Mulan world, or we can go to Beast's Castle, which is the Beauty and the Beast level. I always go to the Land of Dragons first just because it is the lowest level area on the map. Uh, that's just what I've always done traditionally. I, you can go to Beast Castle first. It doesn't matter either way. The same story elements still happen. Uh, but it is worth noting that before we go to one of these two worlds, we get a cutscene where we're once again in the circular white throne room of the organization with seats of varying heights. And the remaining members have gathered there and they are discussing the plan now that Sora is awake. Do my eyes deceive me? Does he really have the power to wield the Keyblade? He's nothing but a boy. Give him a chance. It means he's straight as an arrow. He's pure of heart, unlike all of us here. He had better be, or else he's worthless. I truly hope he's enjoying himself on his adventure. <laughs> Maybe he'd like a hand to determine his fate. Hey, as long as it works in our favor, we can let him do what he wants for now. Then we'll all jump in if needed. Those are bold words coming from you. Are you saying you'll volunteer to take care of it if things go wrong? Huh? What? M me? No, you have the wrong guy. I'm not comfortable with that. <laughs> you act as though you have a conscience. When was the last time any one of us felt anything? Truer words were never spoken. Well, I suppose the fun will have to wait. Do you know what happens to those who lose their true purpose? Inevitably, they destroy themselves. Gentlemen. The hero of the Keyblade has embarked on a new adventure. Make sure it is one he will remember. Now go. And that scene basically ends with the leader of Organization 13 telling everybody assembled there to basically go out, make sure that his new adventure is a memorable one. Pretty ominous. Now, we're reaching the Disney part of the adventure here as things that relate to the Kingdom Hearts plot happen. I will jump in and share those things with you. But until then, I will give you just a, a brief synopsis of the things that happen in the Disney world. So. As I said, Land of Dragons is the Mulan level, and to me, this is probably one of the coolest levels in this game. It's one of the newer worlds that was included. It basically follows the story, beat by beat story, of what happens in Mulan. You know, the Huns have invaded and there is a, a war, so young men are being called up to serve in the army. Uh, Mulan's father is too old. He doesn't have a son that can take his place, so she disguises herself as a man to try and join the army to take his place. And we basically have that story of Sword Donald and Goofy 
discovering that Mulan is pretending to be a man to join the army. Uh, they meet up with Mushu, who recognizes them because Mushu was a summon in Kingdom Hearts 1. So that's kind of a cool tie back into Kingdom Hearts 1. And here, immediately, we can see the themes of reunion and identity established pretty quickly uh, in this world, literally right off the bat. They go down into camp, uh, they get into line, and the three uh, gentlemen from Mulan, uh, Chin Po, Ling, and Yao, uh, they all get in the line, and Yao pretty much just decks the sword right in the face, which is interesting and kind of funny because he literally just punched one of the most powerful people in existence right in the face, but uh, that's, <laughs> we can break that down later. So this ignites a brawl, uh, Captain Lee basically comes out, and you end up getting put through a series of missions and tests for Captain Lee to help Mulan, who is going under the name Ping, from the as in the movie, prove her worth to basically show that she belongs in the army because Captain Lee is ready to like kick her out. This leads to basically kind of like I said, a, a plot by plot story beat of what happens in the movie of Mulan. You go up into the mountain pass, you get the really infamous scene of all of, you know, in the movie, all the Huns like charge down the mountain to fight Captain Lee's troop, except this time the Hun leader, Shan Yu, is obviously possessed by darkness and has the ability to summon Heartless. So there's no other like dudes in his army. It's just like an army of Heartless. And here you basically, you know, have a giant fight with all of his Heartless. They shoot the rocket at the mountain and avalanche comes down. You know how that goes. Uh, you end up fighting Shan Yu in front of the palace gates as a boss who exploit uses using like the power of darkness and you defeat him. And then we basically get the very famous scene at the end of that movie where the emperor is addressing Mulan, bows to her, gives her the sword of Shan Yu. And the sword is the thing that resonates with Sora's keyblade, unlocking the gate to the next world. So not too much going on there in terms of Kingdom Hearts plot. This world really just gets you into the Disney stuff right away, and it's pretty enjoyable. I like the movie Mulan a lot. So afterwards, we go to Beast's Castle, and this Disney world is a little bit more closely tied with the plot of things that are going on in Kingdom Hearts. So obviously, the story of Beauty and the Beast is still trying to play out in the background. Beast is trying to get love and be loved, in, or to give love and be loved in return so that he can have his curse broken on him per the story, but there's actually an organization member named Zaldin who's been meddling in the things that have been going on in this world. And he feeds, we see a scene of, you know, when we get there, Beast is very aggravated and very annoyed and doesn't even recognize Sora, Donald, and Goofy. And, you know, we find Belle in the castle and Belle tells us that he hasn't been himself and he's been acting very strange and very aggressive lately. So we go talk to Beast and we find him with Zaldin and Zaldin is just feeding his insecurities saying that, Belle will never love you and everybody's going to be stuck this way and it's all your fault before we burst in. And before that even happens, you know, Belle tells us that all the servants of the castle were locked up in the dungeon. So we free the servants in the castle. We go to see Beast. We end up calming him down. And he tells us that the organization man, his name is Zaldin, and he's been feeding Beast these lies, these things that are making him very insecure. And while we do have a reunion of Beast and Belle in this part of the section, we end up getting uh, diverged to the ballroom and end up having a fight, a boss battle with a Heartless. And Zaldin actually shows up at the end to taunt Beast. And, and Goofy actually makes a pretty interesting observation here because he mentions that Zaldin is purposefully stoking the, the anxieties in Beast's heart to make him angry and, and frustrated and give in to those negative feelings so that he can turn Beast into a Heartless. And 
And he's like, oh, well, if a Heartless is created, they'll get a nobody, too, because Beast is, is a strong individual. Interesting kind of side idea from Goofy there. And immediately here, too, I kind of, if you remember from Kingdom Hearts 1, the rule was established very early on that you're not supposed to meddle in the affairs of other worlds. But it's moments like these that I see as justification for Sora and his friends meddling in the world because outsiders are meddling in the worlds and messing up the balance. So it's Sora's job to set the balance back Right, and as long as they're heartless in those worlds, he has that jurisdiction to do that. So after unlocking the gates for those two worlds in which the item, which is the gate catalyst in Beast's castle, is the rose that he keeps, that is the reminder of, of his curse and the reminder of his time limit that he has left to fix it, we end up back at the Olympus Coliseum. But when we land there, we don't find ourselves in the Olympus Coliseum. We find ourselves in a much darker, drearier place. Uh, this is, of course, the underworld home to Hades. And I would say that this Disney store doesn't exactly follow the plot of Hercules one to one. This plot deals with more that Hades is stacking the Colosseum with enemies so that Hercules has to fight every day and he's getting getting really exhausted. Uh, This is all part of Hades plan to try and take down Hercules once and for all. So Sora's like, hey, we'll go. They they meet Meg down in the underworld who is on her way to ask Hades to be like, hey, can you back off this guy a little bit, please? Uh, Because obviously we know from the movie Meg is Hercules love interest. So she runs into Sora down on the Goofy and they're like, oh, we know Hades. We'll go talk to him and put him in his place, right? Pete is there. Pete is working with Hades to try and get rid of Hercules because Pete just has to interfere meddle in the affairs of the Disney worlds, right? The underworld is actually a spot where I feel like the Disney and Final Fantasy fusion actually works together really well because in order to get rid of Hercules, Pete makes the suggestion that, hey, he keeps beating all the guys you send against him. Why don't you just send a guy who's already dead? And Hades is like, that's a great idea. So what does he do? He summons from the world of Final Fantasy X, Auron. By the by, uh, what's down there? Just the underworld's deepest dungeon. <laughs> this time I'm bringing out the mother of all bad guys. You don't say. Well, maybe I should go. (laughs) Let's cut to the chase. Here's the deal I'm going to offer you. I let you out of the slammer. No strings, you'll be free as a bird. And all for one little job. Fight Hercules in the Colosseum to the death. This is my story, and you're not part of it. Did you forget who you're talking to? I am the Lord of the Dead. (laughs) No wonder no one wants to die. You are fire! Which, this is a really, really awesome use of the Disney Final Fantasy crossover. When you consider what happens to Auron in Final Fantasy X and what the story of his true nature is and the twists that that game takes as you play it, 
I just think that this is a it's a little bit strange that he's in this Disney underworld. Yeah, it's a little bit weird, but it's a really cool way to include such a really awesome character. So he does it. He calls Oren and Oren appears. He's not having any of this shit. He's rebels right away. And is that when this is happening that Soren the gang bust in and try to confront Hades. And as this is happening, they they get into a fight with him and they realize they can't harm him. And this is where the gimmick of the underworld comes in that heroes powers don't work the way that they normally do when they're in the underworld that's it's hades world and that's his rules so they have to play by it so this basically leads to a really cool like escape cutscene warrior being chased through the pass of the underworld by hades with Auron by your side fighting with you and you have to escape from him and it's it's really really awesome it, it culminates in a so you eventually escape and it culminates in a really cool conclusion to the fight where hades sends cerberus after you and you fight cerberus alongside Auron it's it's really really awesome but even though after this he basically leaves and goes and does his own thing because he doesn't want to be part of this he's got his own story to tell but for that little bit it's cool to have him by your side Sora and the gang finally decide to go up the stairs leading to the Colosseum and it's here that they they meet Hercules and Phil Phil puts him through training and it's here that Hades devises a plan to reopen his own deadlier Colosseum that was locked up by Zeus with a keyhole of course so he basically kidnaps Meg and he appears in front of the gang to tell them that he kidnapped her. Uh, Hercules is like, I'll go rescue her right now. But he's like, hey, you got a match. And if you left, something bad might happen. So he basically cons Hercules into staying into this match. And Sora's like, hey, don't worry about it. We can go take care of it, which is exactly what Hades wants, because Pete tells him that that key can unlock literally anything. So you're probably wondering, why am I spending so much time on this specific Disney World, even though I said I wasn't going to spend as much time on the Disney Worlds? Well, on our way to do this whole song and dance with Hades to, to rescue Meg, we actually, when we first got here, encountered uh, one of the black-coated organization members that was running away through the caverns of the underworld, and that was our only interaction with him. Well, one of the things that we asked Hercules was we discovered there was an artifact in this world called the Olympus Stone. The Olympus Stone counteracts the curse of the underworld so that Sora would be able to use all of his powers, drive form, so that uh, the heroes would actually be able to fight back against whatever Hades is doing down here. They asked Hercules if they can borrow it, but he said that it's been stolen by a person in a black coat. Leading us to believe that it was the gentleman that we saw running through the caverns at the start of the level. And sure enough, when we get to a point just before we're about to arrive in the room where we save Meg, we encounter this black-coated individual just standing out in the open. And when we confront him, he, he pulls back his hood to reveal a somewhat younger member of the organization, maybe an older teenager, early 20s, uh, some longer kind of sandy uh, blonde hair that kind of has like a buzz cut on the sides, but is longer on the top. Almost like a Joe Dirt type of mullet, if I could be so bold as to say that now that I think about it. I'm sure I'll look at a picture of him later and this will totally be inaccurate, but uh, this individual is known as Demix, and Demix is an interesting character in the organization. As he shows here in the cutscene audio I'm about to put in, he's a little more timid than a lot of the other members of the organization. Huh? Oh, you! Wait a sec. Roxas? Excuse me? Roxas? Oh, it's no use. Huh? What are you talking about? Let's see here. If the subject fails to respond, use aggression to liberate his true disposition. Right. Did they ever pick the wrong guy for this one? 
You're bizarre. Oh, he's gonna be the thief. Now that's just plain rude. He taunts Sora a few times by calling him Roxas, another such incident where the members of the organization are trying to get a rise out of Sora by calling him Roxas and Sora has no idea what's going on, but we the player have an idea of what's going on and it hurts just as much this time as it has the previous few times. And Demix responds with one of my favorite lines in the whole game. He pulls out a cue card which says, he says, if subject fails to respond, use aggression to liberate his true disposition, which ironically enough is a quote that is on my desk uh, at work. <laughs> this is the way I do business. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, it is one of my my favorite quotes in the series just because of how it's delivered. And, and Demix says, they, boy, they picked the wrong guy for this one. And we actually have a, a quick fight with Demix. We don't actually fight him, but he summons a water sitar and summons water forms that we have to attack and you can use a reaction to man to kill all of them we have to kill a certain amount in a certain time limit otherwise we'll lose the fight but this is pretty easy uh, we do that and demix basically is like oh fuck i'm not cut out for this and runs away leaving behind the olympus stone uh, from here we kind of wrap up the world as you would expect we rescue meg by unlocking the rock that she's in but that unlocks the Underdrome, which is actually what Hades wants. We fight Pete down there who ambushes us. Hercules comes to the rescue, but by Hercules coming to the rescue, he didn't finish off the Hydra that he was fighting in the Colosseum. The Hydra proceeds to destroy the entire Colosseum, and we have a really, really sick boss fight with the Hydra from Hercules. And as you know, the gimmick of every time you cut off a Hydra head, two more take its place. That mechanic features in the boss fight in a really, really cool way whereas each time you deplete the hydra's health bar and use a reaction to man to cut off its head two more come back or more come back and eventually gets to a critical mass point where sora just like chops them all off at once and you defeat the the boss it's, it's really really cool so after this we leave hercules in a state of disbelief he's really upset with himself and meg says you don't have to worry she'll take care of him we of course get another scene of the keyblade unlocking a gate to another world and this is where we start to get some things in motion on the Disney side and one of the coolest levels I think coming up here that we're going to be visiting next. We get a brief scene of Pete Maleficent talking about the disbanding of the Disney villains to kind of wrap up that plot point and about Organization 13. Pete says the rest of Disney villains basically are either gone or had more important matters to attend to in their own world and this is kind of what was going on in Kingdom Hearts 1 as well. The Disney villains had a very loose alliance and at times they seemed more interested in the things that were going on in their own worlds versus working together to kind of conquer all of the worlds together and this is where we get a scene transition to disney castle we've seen it once before in kingdom hearts one but this time we get to see more of it and we arrive on the scene to see chip and dale bursting into the library where Queen Minnie is staying and warning Queen Minnie about danger in the castle. And after discovering it, Minnie is completely shocked and upset. Calls out to Mickey, but knowing he won't respond. And she closes her eyes and calls out to Donald and Goofy, which basically summons them to the castle. When we arrive at the castle, Chip and Dale are like, yo, shit is going down. We need you guys like yesterday. And we go out into the courtyard to start making our way through the castle. Which is really cool because this is a location that's only hinted at in Kingdom Hearts 1. 
I believe in the data for Kingdom Hearts 1 2, the data for Disney Castle is there. So at some point it was meant to be a world that you went to, but it was actually implemented much better here in Kingdom Hearts 2. We fight our way through through the library just with through a swarm of heartless just just so many all these little all the little shadows keep spawning and it seems like you're fighting them literally forever we reunite with queen minnie in the library and donald and goofy introduce sora to queen minnie and she's like oh sora i've read so much about you uh, the king wrote me in his letters and told me about you so obviously king mickey is still in communication with minnie some way as he's out in the world's fighting dark fighting the darkness, fighting the organization. And Queen Minnie's kind of holding down the fort at home with everybody else while he's out doing what he's got to do. And the trio of heroes quickly make a plan. Donald and Goofy decide to split up and go and warn everybody in the castle about the danger. And Sora decides to escort the queen to the audience chamber because she requests it. And after fighting through additional Heartless in kind of like a mini game style where you're escorting many through waves of heartless and she has a really powerful reaction command that just kind of nuke all the heartless around you when you use it uh, after getting her to the audience chamber which if you remember from kingdom hearts one is a very large comically large door that has just a small door that opens uh, going inside of it she makes it to the throne and just as the heartless are about to overwhelm them she presses a button on the underneath and the whole kind of throne pedestal structure slides forward to reveal a staircase uh, leading down to the darkness and a bright light shines forth basically eliminating all of the heartless that were chasing Sora and Minnie. As we descend into the chamber underneath the throne we see a large spherical object on a platform that has swirling light energy in it but the room in question is filled from ceiling to floor in every corner with these very, very dark thorns. And this artifact is called the Cornerstone of Light. And Minnie explains that the castle and the world of Disney Castle have been protected from the Heartless because of the Cornerstone of Light. It is an artifact of pure light, which basically keeps the darkness away from this world specifically. And it's very concerning that the room that they're currently in is filled with dark thorns. And it seems just like that. If you know your Disney history, you know that the thorns are a calling card of Maleficent, who appears as an apparition before all of them, saying that she wants to take the castle for her own and she wants to make it a bit darker to fill every corner with her personal touch of darkness. Evil as always, and she disappears, cackling like the old hag witch that she is. Sumpt is what to do. Donald Duck actually comes up with a pretty good idea and says that they should go back to Hollow Bastion very quickly and ask Merlin what's going on because he knows a lot about magic and, you know, this is just a, a way to get somebody to be like, oh yeah, Merlin knows what's going on and him to explain and move the plot forward. So that's exactly what they do. They go back to Hollow Bastion, they get in the gummy ship, they fly back to Hollow Bastion, leaving Minnie there by herself burst into Merlin's house, and as soon as they start telling him what's going on, he just decides to take a look for himself, teleporting them all from his house in Hollow Bastion to the basement of Disney Castle, where the cornerstone is. First of all, okay, how? Because by all of the established rules of Kingdom Hearts, he shouldn't be able to just do this. Uh, you need either a gummy ship and to unlock gates between worlds to travel, but he seems to be able to just teleport as he pleases don't know not gonna dwell on it too much because 
And if you're thinking, well, the organization members can teleport wherever they please, but yes, they use corridors of darkness, which are what the portals that they open up all over the place are. And the coat that they wear specifically is designed to protect them from traveling in the dark portals that they use. So there are lore reasons as to why that is. There aren't lore reasons as to why Merlin can just go wherever he wants. But Disney BS, I guess. He summons... Merlin gets there and he quickly deduces the problem because it's almost like as if he's seen this before. Uh, what he does is he summons a really silver ornate looking door and he tells Sora, Donald, and Goofy that the problem lies on the other side of this door. It leads to a special world that they need to go there and fix whatever is going on. They need to find a door that is identical to this one and Sora needs to seal it with his keyblade. But Merlin gives them a dire warning saying that while they're in this world, they will be tempted to do things and that they must not do things, not elaborating on it because if he tells them they're going to be even more tempted to do it. So we go through the door and we find ourselves in what I think is probably the coolest world in Kingdom Hearts 2. Everything is monochrome in black and white and Donald and Goofy have reverted to their early 1920s designs in which they were or 1930s. Whenever they first debuted, that's what their designs look like. And even Sora has an old timey 1920s design to him to match the style of Steamboat Willie. And that is the inspiration for this world that is called the Timeless River. This is the world of when Disney was first starting and you see all kinds of characters from the early history of Disney in their early original states. And what this is, is Merlin summoned a door for them to go into the past. This is being played off as the past of Disney Castle. And in the middle of a hill, we see standing on a pedestal, the cornerstone of light. This is basically the time before Disney Castle was constructed. It's early Disney history with the cornerstone still being right there. And sure enough, as our heroes go out to explore this world and figure out what's going on, they come across none other than Pete. But it's Pete in his old 1920s style design. And after thrashing him around a bit, he makes some comments about his steamboat and they quickly start to realize this isn't the Pete that they're looking for. This isn't the Pete that they've come to, to know. Of course, in Disney history, Pete used to be the captain of the Steamboat, which is where the Steamboat Willie cartoon comes from, the iconic first cartoon or one of the earliest cartoons with Mickey Mouse. So to figure out what's going on here, there's a series of mini stages at the start of the level where the Cornerstone of Light is. You go into each one and you have to clear it of Heartless. And sure enough, King little King Mickey is there running around in all amidst all this chaos. And they're like, oh, shit, we have to protect him because he's not the king yet. Uh, you do these four like mini levels inside the level and at the end of each you get uh, a curtain thing that you can pull on and it, it pulls the curtain up and reveals the story of what is going on. We see sometime during our time that Maleficent was basically tearing Pete a new one for just being an idiot and failing so much. As she walks away, Pete starts to feel, we, we're seeing this from the point of view of Pete, he starts to feel really sorry for himself. He just wishes that he didn't have to deal with all this and he says that he misses the good old days and what he wouldn't give to have those days back and this is when the silver door appears behind him through some force of Pete's wish and when he opens it he goes hey that looks like my steamboat understanding that this is a door to the past that has presented itself 
to Pete in his time of sorrow, which doesn't isn't really explained in the greater mythos of Kingdom Hearts, even though future titles do deal with time travel. We'll get to that bridge when we come to it. And Pete shows Maleficent this and she looks at it and says, yes, this this is a door to the past. And she says those fools are just about to start construction on the castle. And this is their chance to get rid of the cornerstone of light before the castle's even constructed so that she can take it over. And this meddling of the timeline is what is causing her to be able to push darkness into the castle because they're basically taking the cornerstone away. And sure enough, yes, the this world does culminate in a fight against Pete who tries to steal the cornerstone with his old steamboat. He basically beats up the past version of himself, which is kind of funny. But he's thwarted by Sora and has a really pretty cool boss fight where it utilizes all four of the stages that you cleared throughout this level it's pretty cool and you again thrash pete and toss him to the toss him to the side and he summons the silver door and retreats back through it and sora locks it saving the castle from any kind of time travel shenanigans that maleficent was hoping to employ and sure enough when you leave the timeless river this fixes the problem all of the thorns in the castle disappear they can no longer use this and the castle is safe I think this level is so cool with the way the designs of these characters so drastically changed. They didn't have to do that. They could have just made the current designs of Sora, Donald, and Goofy black and white, but they made a completely different set of sprites and animations for this world specifically, and it's so cool. And even the audio from the sounds and the fights and the music sounds like it's coming through an old-timey radio or a record player. It sounds kind of bit-crushed. It's, it's such a very cool attention, little attention to detail that didn't have to be in the game at all, but they put it in there and it's absolutely incredible. It's one of my favorite worlds in all of Kingdom Hearts. So the reason I spent some time covering that is just because that feels like a, the most relevant Disney plot thread that connects to the story. And I really like that world. I thought it was really cool, worth mentioning. You should definitely go and check out the music, the world. Just just search Kingdom Hearts 2 Timeless River and just see what that world's about. It's so, so cool. Continuing on our Disney journey here, next up is Port Royal. Uh, this is Pirates of the Caribbean. And I got to say, if I'm judging the worlds, this one's probably my least favorite next to Atlantica, which will not be named because Atlantica is like a side world kind of and the Winnie the Pooh stuff. They obviously wanted to have Pirates of the Caribbean in Kingdom Hearts 2 because at the time, the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise was pretty big. I believe the first one had just come out. Scratch that. The first one had come out in 2003, and the second one, Dead Man's Chest, was coming out in 2006. And that movie was incredibly successful for Disney. I don't know. They've kind of diminished in quality as the successive sequels have come out, but the first movie was really, really good. And even the second movie, Dead Man's Chest, wasn't that bad so they obviously wanted to capitalize on this but the funny thing is they couldn't afford any of the actors they couldn't afford johnny depp or he just didn't want to do it uh they didn't get orlando bloom they didn't get Keira knightley they didn't get jeffrey rush for barbosa it's this weird kind of mix of 
realism with Disney characters like Pete's there talking to Barbosa and Donald and Goofy are standing alongside Jack Sparrow. You know, Sora looks more cartoony than real. It's just it's such a strange, strange world discount. And the guy who tried to play Johnny Depp captures mannerisms. He did did an adequate job. It's just it doesn't feel <laughs> very inspired. I think the Pirates of the Caribbean world from Kingdom Hearts 3 is much, much better. It's an improvement on every aspect. But this is Pirates of the Caribbean. They're dealing with the Aztec treasure, which, you know, is cursed. The cool gimmick about Pirates of the Caribbean is that some of the pirates you fight are their skeleton form from the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, and you can only kill them while they're in the moonlight. And the level is designed in such a way that there are shaded areas and moonlit areas that you kind of have to navigate well doing battle and your magic is more effective against them in their skeleton form like if you shock them with lightning they'll be lightning all over and they'll kind of walk like they're getting electrocuted if you use your fire magic they'll like light them on fire and they'll take damage over time so there's some cool gimmicks with the fights and the level design in the pirates level but it's pretty pretty uninspired across the rest of the thing the the boss fight against barbosa at the end which is the, the climax of your first visit there is actually pretty cool because you're, you're fighting him alongside Jack Sparrow and he utilizes a heartless that turns everything dark. So obviously giving him protection, taking him out of his skeleton form. You have to hunt down that heartless before you can actually engage him in the boss fight. So there's a cool gimmick there with that as well. The, the, the combat gimmicks are, are pretty cool, but the world overall is just not very inspired even though the fact that Sora loves it because remember Sora is still a 15 year old kid and the idea of pirates to him is you know pirates are so romanticized these days from the notorious killers that they were <laughs> back in the 17th or 18th century whenever it was that's Port Royal Pirates of the Caribbean we go to Halloween Town we're back in Halloween Town this time it follows the plot of the movie a little more closely Jack Skellington is obsessed with Christmas, so we get uh, to go to the Christmas portion, uh, the Christmas Town portion side of Nightmare Before Christmas, and that's kind of cool because Sora is excited to see Santa Claus and find out if he's on the nice list. But uh, it, we get a cool scene where Sora is asking Santa if he's on the nice list, and Santa looks on his list and says, "No, you told kids when you were younger <laughs> that you didn't believe in Santa Claus." So I just thought that was kind of a, a, a funny toss in there. Basically, the whole entire thing of this world is Maleficent brings back Oogie Boogie. He has a serious case of amnesia. So as soon as she brings him back, he tells her to get the hell out of here. Like, hey, you're cramping my style. Please leave. And you ultimately have a showdown with Oogie Boogie again, who kidnaps Santa. It's basically the plot of Nightmare Before Christmas with a little bit of a twist on it. So we're not missing much there. One cool touch about this world is that Sora's costume changes between Halloween and Christmas when you go back and forth between the two towns. Again, another detail that they didn't have to put in, but they did, and it just shows the level of detail and care that they took while paying homage to all of these Disney worlds. Arachnagra, again, for whatever reason, because I felt like the plot of Agarbo was pretty well tied up from the first Kingdom Hearts game. Agra doesn't really serve any kind of grand purpose here. It's a mix of the plots of Aladdin movies. I, th I think it's mostly centered around Jafar's return. Pete's here. He's in the mix. He's trying to get Jafar's lamp as it was found by some sketchy merchant character that they have. Uh, Sora, Aladdin, and the gang go to the Cave of Wonders to get a treasure 
to buy the lamp from the merchant. This culminates in a fight against Pete and Fire and Ice Heartless duel. A very, very cool fight where you're fighting two giant Heartless and they kind of have a relationship with one another. So that's a, a very, very cool boss fight. But in the end, and Yago's there too. Yago has a mini kind of story arc where he's trying to make up with Aladdin and Jasmine and atone for all the bad things that he's done. He realizes that he did a lot of bad things. And this kind of tracks with all the Aladdin media over the years of Yago becoming like a good guy. The final world revealed to us is one that I like, but one that does have some problems in the grand scheme of Kingdom Hearts 2. The final world is the Pride Lands, and that is, of course, the world of the Lion King. And here we basically get the plot from the Lion King. We see the scene in Mufasa's death pretty much right at the start of the of the world. So get ready to relive that trauma from your childhood all over. Uh, I like this world a lot. One thing, Lion King was the first movie I ever saw in theaters. I think it's the first movie that I ever remember. And it's been one that's very close to my heart. And this is another world where we have a pre-existing relationship with Simba because Simba was a summon in Kingdom Hearts 1. His world had just been devoured by the Heartless. So like I said, we basically get the plot of the Lion King here. I think it's super cool because we get to see Sora transformed into a lion cub. And, and Lion Sora is one of my favorite forms. Donald gets turned into like a savanna bird and Goofy gets turned into a turtle. So it's very cool to see again. Such a level of detail that they put into where you're like changing forms in, in most of these worlds that you go to. That's Pirates, Halloween Town, Atlantica, and Prylance, and Timeless River. That's five worlds that I can think of right off the top of my head that have some kind of different form that Sora and his friends are in. It's, it's such a cool, such a little touch, a little attention to detail. On the flip side of this, though, Lion Sora has a completely different set of moves than person Sora, obviously, and you can't use drive form. So the game is basically changing the way the way you play it for this section of the game. It's different than it was in the underworld because in the underworld it had like a gimmick where, oh, that makes sense. You're there, you're a hero, you're not going to have access to all your powers because that's just the nature of the world. Eventually you get that back, but the Prylands take that away from you permanently and basically change the way that you fight and the way that you used to. It's a nice change, but it's just a little jarring if you've gotten used to the combat and have your abilities set up the way you want all the abilities are completely different so Sora and friends basically help Simba overcome his self-doubt you know the self-doubt he has in the movies the guilt he feels over being responsible for the death of his father and this culminates in a really really cool but also very frustrating boss fight against Scar on the top of Pride Rock Pete is also there in lion form kind of advising Scar and reveals at this point that all of the negative feelings inside of Scar's heart have turned him into a heartless, basically ratcheting up the the meaning of, of this battle. But Simba does eventually triumph. He reclaims his rightful place as king and we're able to move on from there. We've made our first trip through the Disney worlds. Yes, you heard me correctly. Our first trip through the Disney worlds. We will get to that in just a second, but we are approaching the midpoint of the game. And this is where stuff is about to get a little bit crazy. After our adventure in the Pride Lands, we get a scene of Pluto, the dog, wandering a dark looking city, when suddenly a gate opens and a whistle beckons Pluto through it. 
we transition to a scene of Kairi waiting by the ocean, clearly waiting for Sora to get her letter that she sent him in the bottle. And she says, maybe waiting isn't good enough. And that is when all of a sudden a portal opens and Axel appears. Maybe waiting isn't good enough. My thoughts exactly. If you have a dream, don't wait. Act. One of life's little rules. Got it memorized? Who are you? Axel. I happen to be an acquaintance of Sora's. Why don't we go see him? Sora? We've got something in common, Kairi. You and I both miss someone we care about. Hey, I feel like we're friends already. You're not acting very friendly. Axel tells her that he's an acquaintance of Sora's and offers to take Kairi to see him. Luckily, Pluto shows up just in time, and before they can be surrounded by the dusks, Pluto and Kyrie dive into another portal that opens up and another whistle comes out of. They're stuck in like this weird kind of negative in-between space where there's nothing and Kyrie sees another portal that is brimming with light and upon entering it, finds herself on the floor of the usual spot in Twilight Town in front of Hainer and Pence and Olette. So here, the Kingdom Hearts portion of the story inserts itself back into the plot and we see Axel making a move against Sora, deciding to go and kidnap Kairi. We don't get any more from that scene just yet. After unlocking the gate in the Pride Lands, we get called back to Twilight Town. I guess not called back to Twilight Town. There's something going on with it where we're like, you're implied to, the, the game basically nudges you in the direction to go there to continue the plot. Once we land there, we immediately see Vivi running for his life, asking for help saying that it's Cypher, it's Cypher, he's in the sandlot. And we rush to the aid of Cypher's gang, who we find are surrounded by nobodies. After fighting off all these nobodies, we see, standing off to the side, a man in a black coat standing there, obviously a member of the organization, applauding as Sora defeats his nobody underlings. And then he asks us, Impressive. By the way, have you seen a man named Axel? I expect he's here somewhere. Like I care. You see, Axel's no longer acting in our best interest. Is he with the organization too? Yes. You have a front? Not a very organized organization. Don't let your guard down. Axel will stop at nothing to turn you into a heartless. Gee, thanks for looking out for us, mister. But I'm sure we can take care of ourselves just fine. Glad to hear it. Axel aside, it would break our hearts to hear something happen to you. Hearts? 
You don't have any hearts. True, we don't have hearts. But we remember what it was like. That's what makes us special. What do you mean? We know very well how to injure a heart. Sora, you just keep on fighting those heartless. Let's jump in after him. How come? I'm not sure, but maybe he'll lead us to the organization's world. Don't be reckless. Do you want to end up like Riku? What? Hey! Wait! What did he mean, end up like Riku? Sora, being Sora, tosses him a healthy dose of sarcasm, asking why the man would be watching out for them, which is an accurate and fair question. Good job, Sora, you're learning. The man pulls back his hood to reveal long bluish hair and an X scar across his face right where his nose is. As he plans to leave, Donald and Sora plan to jump into the dark portal after him, but the man advises against it, saying that you don't want to end up just like Riku, which immediately upon hearing that name throws Sora off of whatever he's trying to plan, and the man steps into the portal and then disappears. This is another member of the organization, like I said, and his name is Saix, S-A-I-X. So remember that, Saix with the blue hair and the cross scar on his nose, where, like right about where his eyes and his nose are. Immediately after this, Cypher and his gang regain consciousness, and Cypher's tired of this shit. I mean, as much of a dick as Cypher is, he's just trying to do his job. He's the town disciplinarian. He's trying to just keep order in the town, and he's like, hey, get out of here. You're just causing trouble. But before they do, Cypher does show a begrudging act of respect and runs up to him and gives him the struggle trophy, saying, here you go. This belongs to the strongest person in Twilight Town. He just take and like Sora's not going to take it. He's like, I don't need this. But Cypher basically thrusts it into his hands and he walks away anyways. After the confrontation, Pence just happens to walk up and finds Sora and the gang and asks them if they know a person mentions the name Kyrie. This, again, minutes ago, Sora just heard the name of his friend Riku. He's stunned, so Sora follows him to the station to meet up uh, with Hainer and Olette. And this is where they recount the story of how Kairi had appeared in Twilight Town and told them she was looking for Sora. And the gang was like, we know a Sora. He literally just left not too long ago. And the Twilight Town gang convinces her to stick around for when Sora comes back. But literally not moments later... Axel appears and proceeds to kidnap Kyrie. There's just Pence and Hainer try to defend her, but there's just nothing they can do. He <laughs> Axel just shoves them off. He's a powerful ex-member of the organization, as far as we know. He proceeds to kidnap Kyrie, just grabs her by the arm and pulls her through the portal. Sora is, is clearly upset here, and the gang are obviously very upset at themselves for not being able to protect her. But Sora, ever the optimist, is saying that they don't have to worry that they'll Find Kyrie. I passed on the message as you so desired. I told the young Sora to keep defeating the Heartless. Good. Not only have you the power to inflict pain, you also have the power to plant seeds of doubt in one's receptive heart. 
Sora will soon begin to doubt himself. It will cause him to hesitate. And that hesitation will turn to anger. That anger will fuel him to get rid of his apprehension and move forward. He will pave the way for the future we desire. There's something I've meant to ask. About Axel, the poor fool. How long will he keep chasing the illusion of friendship when he himself lacks emotion, trying so hard to retrieve what he has lost when it may never have existed in the first place? He deserves nothing more than our pity. In this scene, we see the blue-haired individual known as Sykes talking to the leader of Organization 13, saying that he basically told Sora to stay on his current path, kind of laid the seeds of doubt in his mind. And the leader of the organization is saying is basically telling Sykes, this is what you're good at. Lay the seeds of doubt in his mind. Make him frustrated. Make him angry. That will cause him to direct his rage at the heartless and continue doing what they need him to do. So it just seems kind of interesting here and and they have a little bit of a conversation about axel and they basically come to the conclusion that axel needs to be taken care of and one of the things that does happen at the end of this twilight town chapter is that the blue crystal on the struggle trophy resonates with sora's keyblade unlocking another gateway and this is basically just to show that you can we're entering the world's revisited portion of the story you go to all the worlds and visit them one more time to kind of wrap up any loose story threads that you have there but the first place we are returning back to is to hollow bastion and that is where the gate actually summons and brings them back to where they are going to meet up with the final fantasy gang to see about some amazing discovery that is actually going to upend a lot of things that we think we know about the kingdom hearts story but on our way there before we do we meet up with our favorite sad spiky haired anime protagonist who wields the biggest sword of all time it is our boy cloud and he is looking a little bit different than he did in kingdom hearts one he is wearing his advent children outfit this is the era of advent children spectacular oh it's great it's it's definitely a more toned down namora design but it is a quintessential classic namora design if you've ever ever seen one and this is where we get an interesting cutscene with cloud who warns them about meeting a certain long silver-haired individual who wields a long sword oh cloud what you doing i'll get him this time we settle it me and the one who embodies all the darkness in me. Huh, I said you look kinda different, Cloud. If I do, it's his fault. Whose? Sephiroth. Tell me if you see him. Okay, what's he look like? Silver hair. Carries a long sword. Sure. Well, be seeing you, Cloud. Be careful. He messes with your head. Makes you think darkness is the only way. 
the person that embodies the darkness that Cloud has in his heart, the physical representation of his inner struggle. He's, of course, referencing Sephiroth, who in this universe is the representation of the darkness that Cloud has in his heart. I'm not too well versed with what their relationship is in Final Fantasy VII. Colby, if you're listening, you can give me that information in the Discord. But Sephiroth is the living embodiment of Cloud's darkness, of his struggle, of his feelings that he has in his heart. And just before he goes to walk off to be by himself, Aerith shows up to see if Cloud is leaving. And uh, I won't go into this scene doesn't matter too much in the grand scheme of things, but this is a really touching scene considering that Aerith fucking dies. So I just think it's interesting that Cloud and Aerith get this opportunity to to interact again. Uh, it's very, very cool. Spoiler alert, Aerith does not die here, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, the, the gang heads over to Merlin's house where Yuffie and Sid inform them of their amazing discovery. They've actually found Ansem's computer the one where he logged all of his research data and it may have info on everything that they've been working to figure out. The Heartless, Organization 13, the whereabouts of Riku and the King. So this is actually a really, really incredible discovery because if you remember from the Ansem reports from Kingdom Hearts 1, Ansem was a researcher. He was researching the nature of the heart. So he had to keep all that information somewhere. Where better to keep it than in a computer? And it'll become apparent why it's a computer here in a second it ties into actually another disney property but we'll get to that in just a moment on our way to the castle because we're living in the era of final fantasy 10 we bump into the gull wings from final fantasy 10 2 yuna riku and pain who are looking for info on Leon's group and appear to be working for Maleficent for some reason, but I don't really understand why their inclusion is here. It doesn't really seem all that prevalent. If you took the Gullwings out, I don't think the story would be any different. I just feel like they're trying to cash in <laughs> on the popularity of Final Fantasy X and X-2 at the time. I have no experience with X-2, so I don't really see an obvious connection as to why the Gullwings would be here. But hey, Square Enix gonna Square Enix. It's a nice Easter egg for the fans that did play 10-2. I have not played 10-2. I've always meant to go back and play it. Just haven't gotten around to it yet. Rick, if you're listening, maybe you can explain to me why <laughs> the Gullwings are here. I have no idea. After making their way towards the castle, they go through a series of underground passages uh, with Experiment 626, aka Stitch, following them on the walls in tow. Another cute little Disney, Disney reference there. They arrive in a circular room that is completely trashed, but has the picture of a young man in a lab coat with stark white hair. The unmistakable visage of Ansem. Hanging on a wall, it's a nice painted portrait. We can gather by this visual information that we're getting that this appears to be his study. As they make this revelation and figure this out, a woman with long black hair dressed in all black steps into the room and says she's looking for a man with spiky hair. And this is the Kingdom Hearts 2 introduction of Tifa. She is looking for Cloud for some reason. After punching some walls, searching the room, she leaves dissatisfied. And when the door closes, Leon appears out of nowhere, is just standing very, very coolly on the wall, just leaning there. And he takes them over to Ansem's computer. 
this is very exciting because all we know is that Ansem is a researcher who seems to be at the center of every single plot line happening in Kingdom Hearts right now. And for some reason seems to be working with Diz or a person named Ansem is working with Diz. We don't know what's going on with that yet because we literally haven't heard anything from Diz since Roxas' story ended. Immediately, Sora starts beating on the computer, asking about his friends before Leon has to tell him to literally relax. Sora is pretty <laughs> computer technology illiterate here, which is incredible because he flies a spaceship through space, which you figure would require some kind of computer literacy unless gummy engine. I'm not going to get into the finer details of gummy engineering in the Kingdom Hearts universe. Maybe that'll be a bonus episode. Who knows? But Sora's just beating on it. And this is where Stitch drops down from the ceiling onto the computer keyboard and Donald jumps up there to chase him off. The computer has had enough of this shit and is sets off an alarm and a warning voice emanates from the computer saying to knock it off. Donald tries to get off but presses more keys and a beam of light comes out of the wall behind them, strikes Sora, Donald, and Goofy, transporting them into the world of space paranoids the tron world the world of the disney movie tron which happens to reside inside the computer of ansem oh boy okay so here we go the gang meets tron they're all in a prison cell and he explains how the computer was used by ansem for his research data and for town maintenance and how ansem used to be the main user the new master control program took over the system and now all that stuff is locked up tight. But with the right password, Tron could access the, the data space, which is what he calls all of that data that he can't get access to. Uh, he calls it the DTD, that area of the hard drive that he's trying to access. Uh, he could free the data and get more power, more of his backup functions to fight the new master control program that basically has an iron grip on the system. They escape prison and Tron helps get the gang back to the real world. The point of this is Tron sends the gang back into the real world to try and find the password to the data space, the DTD, so that he can access it, so that the gang can access it, so they can have access to Ansem's research data. So Tron helps the gang get back to the real world and they begin searching Ansem's study for the password. Tifa comes back because she was like, oh, there's a secret wall here where the computer was hidden. I, why didn't I think of that? And she starts to do another thorough sweep of the room again. She takes down the big ass painting of Ansem by herself. And this just happens to be what we're looking for. It reveals a faded heart diagram with some scribblings on the wall. And conveniently, the letters D, T, D are not faded on the word door to darkness but that still leaves the password so you can start to see this is kind of the dtd door to darkness that's the data scape that tron needs to access to get access to the research data to get access to his backup functions so that he can fight and gain control of ansem's computer basically as the gang is pondering this we hear behind us a familiar squeaky voice ask about the door to darkness Say, fellas, did somebody mention the door to darkness? Your 
long time no see. Shh. The organization might be listening. You mentioned the door to darkness? Oh, yes, sir. You see, we're looking for the secret password. Password? Oh, I guess you mean like a code. Well, the door to darkness can only be opened by the seven princesses. There's Snow White, Jasmine, and Belle. Of course. Mickey asks them what's going on, and they also, they explain how the computer they found is Ansem's computer, and that the data might be able to help them. And here, Mickey drops a, a very puzzling line. What are you trying to do? With that password, we can get access to Ansem's research data. So that means you might be able to find out where he is. Stop joking around, your majesty. We already defeated Ansem. You know that. Looks like I've got a lot of explaining to do. Okay, but first I've got a question. Hey, isn't Tron waiting for you guys? Sora counters by saying that they defeated Ansem and Mickey just smiles, saying that he has some things he needs to explain about what he's been doing. Oh no. <laughs> I feel like things are going to change everything that we know about what we know so far. <laughs> but before we can get answers from Mickey, Leanne of course has to interrupt and says, hey, isn't Tron waiting for you guys? And they're like, yeah, but Mickey could be gone when we come back. And Mickey's like, no, no, I'm not going anywhere. Do what you got to do. I'll be right here and then we can talk. They go back into the computer. They meet back up with Tron. They use the password of the seven princesses to unlock the data space. And that works. It restores Tron's power to what it used to be. They have access to all the data. But uh, of course, the MCP, the master control program, notices this and tries to take over the data. Tron locks it by changing the password. And after a heartless boss battle showdown, the MCP appears to be stopped for now. The, it, the data appears to be secure. Tron is more powerful than he used to be. Uh, right now, things in the computer system seem to be at a standstill right now. Before they head back to what Tron calls the user world, Tron tells them that he changed the password and that their names are the new password. So the group teleports once again back, to, back into Hollow Bastion. They use a new password to access Ansem's data and the computer allows them to access it. But every time they ask it a question, it keeps telling them that the data is corrupt. Sora asks about Riku and Kairi. Uh, Goofy asks about the organization and the nobodies. And we keep getting the computer returning the query response as the data is corrupt. So Sora naturally, being Sora, just decides to beat the shit out of the computer. And he wails on it enough until a picture pops up. A picture of an unknown individual an older man with medium-length blonde hair and a blonde goatee wearing a white lab coat and a red scarf. And everyone's like, well, who is this guy? Mickey comes in to see what's going on, what all the ruckus is about, and when he sees the computer screen, he exclaims, Ansem the Wise! Come on, are you teasing us again? Can you forget what Ansem looked like, your majesty? 
Of course I do, and this is him. I'm positive. Huh? Excuse me, could you come this way, please? The gang is understandably confused because they know what Ansem looks like. Ansem is the white-haired individual, the Seeker of Darkness, the man that they fought in Kingdom Hearts 1 and Chain of Memories. But Mickey insists that this is Ansem. He he's insists that this is Ansem. And here we get a, a pretty funny scene that Sora basically grabs Mickey by the scruff of the coat and drags him back into Ansem's study and is like, hey, he shows him the painting and says, this is the guy, the white haired Ansem. This is this is who Ansem is. We, we fought him for the last two games. He was the one that was trying to mess with all the worlds. OK, what we're about to talk to is the start of all of the Kingdom Hearts mistaken identities. People are. Other people, people are not who they say. So to start, I will just let Mickey take it from here. Your Majesty, please explain. Look, this is Ansem. You know, the guy we all worked really hard to defeat. Oh, that's right. I never finished explaining. What? Well, the man in the picture is definitely the one who tried to take over Kingdom Hearts. The one you fellas defeated. But what you actually fought was his heartless. You see, he wasn't really handsome. He just went around telling everybody that he was. You mean... What? We went through all that trouble to defeat an imposter? Yup, a fake. But he still had to be stopped. Uh, I can't believe it. Oh, I'm kind of confused. If he's a fake, then what happened to the real Ansem? Welp, that's just what I'm trying to figure out. Ansem the Wise should know all about Organization 13's plans and what's been happening to the worlds. I'm pretty sure he'll give us some help. You know? I came close to finding him once. I'm going to repeat what he said because it is here. It is this moment that we begin with the true Kingdom Hearts madness. Mickey tells us that the man in the painting, the white haired man that we know as Ansem, Ansem Seeker of Darkness, is not the real Ansem. The man on the computer screen, the man with the blonde hair and the blonde goatee, is the actual Ansem the Wise. This white-haired individual stole Ansem the Wise's identity. And what's more, the Ansem that you actually fought at the end of Kingdom Hearts 1 and had encounters with in Chain of Memories isn't actually the man who stole Ansem's identity but it is his heartless. Give you a minute to let that all sink in. Goofy, God bless his soul, then asks the obvious question, what happened to the real Ansem? And Mickey says that's what he's been investigating. He says that Ansem the Wise should have insight into what Organization 13 is doing, what has been going on with everything that's happening in the last two, three games that we've been playing. Then Goofy again, God bless his soul, in a stunning display of wisdom, connects more dots. Hmm. 
Don't tell me there's more. I'm lost enough as it is. Well, let's see. Some feller named Ansem, who wasn't really Ansem, became a Heartless. Does that mean a nobody got created when that happened too? Yup. And that nobody is the leader of the organization. What? what? I know I've met this fake Ansem before, and I've seen the leader of Organization 13 too. Hmm, kind of felt like being around the same fella. So, where did you meet this guy? Gosh, I can't remember. And he says and asks that if a Heartless of this fake Ansem was made, then wouldn't a nobody have been made as well? And Mickey responds with another bombshell saying that the nobody that was made is the leader of the organization. That is right. The nobody of the fake Ansem is the leader of Organization 13, which means we are basically fighting another aspect of the same guy, meaning this guy is responsible for pretty much that is everything that has happened in these first three games. <laughs> Mickey continues saying that he remembers meeting this fake Ansem before, and he's seen the leader of Organization 13 as well, but he can't remember where or when because so much has happened. And don't forget, Mickey has also spent time in the Realm of Darkness, which would mess with anybody's memory. Sora then asks a follow-up question as he's thinking out loud to himself about Riku. You. You started all of this. Because of you, Riku and Kairi. Oh, Your Majesty, do you know where Riku is? He's... I'm sorry, I can't help. Really, Your Majesty? Are you sure? I'm sorry, Sora. Mickey starts to answer, but turns away from Sora and lowers his head, saying that he can't help. Disappointed, Sora then asks about Kyrie, and Mickey is stunned to learn that Kyrie has been kidnapped. After this revelation, Mickey, staring at the picture of the guy who's not Ansem, tells them, Sora, Donald, Goofy. I was planning to go get help from Ansem the Wise, but now I know I forgot the most important thing. Helping others should always come before asking others for help. We're safe and sound and free to choose. So there's no reason we shouldn't choose to help our friends. Let's look for Riku and Kairi together. So it looks like Mickey is on board and is finally going to be helping us out instead of running around doing whatever the hell he's been doing, which we know what he's been doing now. He's been searching for Ansem the Wise, the real Ansem, this blonde haired, blonde goateed gentleman who he claims is the actual Ansem, not this fake white haired imposter that we've been dealing with for the last three games. <sighs> my goodness. So as you can see, <laughs> this is the start of all of the, this guy is actually this guy and is also this guy, but is actually this guy stuff that this series is notorious for. And I love it. I love it so much. I am just an absolute sicko in that fashion of how much I love <laughs> this reveal. It's so good. But suddenly 
before the gang can do anything else, there is a massive, massive explosion outside and things are about to kick off. Outside! Sounds like we gotta start by helping out here! As Mickey, as if on instinct, just goes charging out of the room. And this is the start of the mid-game climax. The battle of Hollow Bastion has begun. <laughs> 